Good evening. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. Happy almost Halloween. It's getting close. Spooky season. She's almost here. Ah. Ah. How are you? The same as I was when we recorded about five minutes ago. <laughs> we, Carly and I stayed on the same Skype call in between episodes. Well, I yeah, made a cup of tea. Yeah, full transparency. These are, yeah, these two episodes are coming to you, coming to you recorded on the same day and posted a, a week apart. Back to Which is back. what we usually do. I thought I of something know, I forgot to say last time. Oh, yeah, what's up? I've been back on my um, Irish history podcast bullshit. Oh, yeah. Um, I've been listening to some of the medieval ones, and I listened to a really cool episode today, of, which was, like, Sounds of Medieval Dublin. And it's just, Ooh. it's, like, sound design, so you can hear, like, the blacksmith in the forge and, like, the seagulls and the pigs that roamed the streets and, like, the fight outside of the tavern. It was very interesting. And it was fun because I listened to it while I was walking through Dublin. Is it just, like, a relaxation, like... No, 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 no. He's narrating. He's telling you about life in medieval Dublin, but he'll be like, and now you're walking past the church and you hear this, and then you hear it. No, there's, like, a YouTube video of soundscapes of the uh, Gryffindor common room. And it's, like, a two-hour loop of, like, a fire crackling. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's not that. It's historical. Um, I wouldn't say that medieval Dublin would be a relaxing place. But it was, in- it was good. We are now at the point where we can talk about our mini-myths. Yes. And how we got the fabulous Casey Truba to sound design them. I love you, Casey! I'm very pleased with how they're turning out she has done she's gonna do all of them for us so i'm obsessed with you've her. heard the first set yeah we are all obsessed with casey so you heard the first set there'll be two more sets of mini myths coming at you and i hope you like them i know they're a little different from what we normally do but they're fun think, and casey yeah. is so talented thank you so much for doing that you know Megan and I were in college at the same time, about, like, an hour and a half apart in the Chicago. She was in Chicago, I was in the suburbs. So, for, like, two years, we're both in college together, and she's friends with Casey, and, like, you and Casey were, like, the cool older kids, especially Casey, because you're my sister, so. (laughs) So that makes me less cool. (laughs) Understandable. But, like... When I would get to come hang out with you guys, or, like, when I would hang out with you and Casey was there, which checked out because you lived together. This is just turning into the Casey Troopa podcast. Yes. And frankly, I support that. I love you, Casey. I love you. Extra spooky. Oh my god, that was very spooky. (laughs) And, well, as usual, you're working overtime, so should we dive in? Let's do it. Nothing matters. Oh my god. I'm so excited. Okay, no, okay. Before we do that. The other night. So I have my, like, routine before bed when I'm on my phone, and I go YouTube. No, I go Twitter, then I go YouTube, then I go BuzzFeed, and then I go Reddit, and I, like, look at stuff before I go to bed. And for whatever reason, on my recommended videos list, um, on my YouTube feed was a video about how, like, in however many trillion 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 years how the universe is gonna like cease to exist no thank you or become empty it like for real fucked me up yeah i have no interest in that i i am happy i love to learn about things but i'm happy to 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 remain in ignorance about that particular thing yeah 
it just like was really upsetting which doesn't even make sense because we're gonna be so far gone when it happens yeah humans are well also humans in general are not gonna exist at that point well also like we're not necessarily super capable of wrapping our minds around that kind of amount of time that's true and that kind of existentialism Mm. Of, like, the thing that encompasses all existence will one day be empty. Yeah, I don't like it. And I was just really not ready for that at all. Mm. Do you do you want to link to that, or do you want to let our listeners yeah, remain let's unaware? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Should we go? Alaga. This is a very um, Halloween-appropriate episode. Um... So this first thing right here is going to immediately give it away. Do you know any nursery rhymes about an axe murderer? Oh, yeah, I do. Do you want to say it for the class? Does it go like, Yeah. Do it, say it. Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, gave her father 41. Yes. Lizzie Borden. I would argue that she's the most famous axe murderer of all time. Alleged axe murderer. Actually, uh, it wasn't even an axe. It was a hatchet. Well, actually, she got away with it, so. Yeah, she did not, she was not convicted. She's a regular Um, Casey Anthony. And it wasn't 40 and 41. I think it was like 11 and 18. Huh. But yeah, so Lizzie Still a lot. Yeah, so she was, she was actually... That's that, and you know what they say—the first blow kills each of them. So that was really way more than necessary. Not that it's necessary to kill people. Crime of passion. So she was, like we just said, found innocent. But I. So was Casey well, Anthony. People, we got to remember these things. Oh my God! True. Um, the Smithsonian Magazine says there is no doubt, as a quote, that she did it. Really. So like, yeah. Um, and there's like no one else. But it was a really divisive case at the time, and I'm going to go later into some of the, like, social reasons why, because she was, like, she was never going to be convicted for it. So, early life. She was born July 19th, 1860, so she was a cancer. Okay. <laughs> I don't really know what a cancer means. Um, <laughs> she was born in Fall River, Massachusetts. Her father was named Andrew Jackson Borden, and he was a successful property developer. He directed textile mills. He owned property. He was president of a bank. This family would have been the equivalent of millionaires in today's money. Oh, yeah. I, I remember, but, like, I'm sure we'll get into it, but they, the dad was, like, really, like, weirdly frugal, wasn't he, given his status? That was what I was about to say next. Great, yeah. Right. Yeah, so they lived in a modest house. They didn't have indoor plumbing or electricity, both of which were things that, like, existed at the time. And they lived in sort of like an old money neighborhood, but it wasn't necessarily a fashionable neighborhood. Um, Lizzie had an older sister named Emma Lenora Borden, and they were raised Christian, very involved with the church, and also involved with various sort of Christian charity organizations. Okay. Their mother died when they were three. Sorry, their mother died when Lizzie was three. And their father married again when she was six. Mm -hmm. The stepmother was named Abby Durfee Gray. And Lizzie called her, yeah, Lizzie called her Mrs. Borden. Ooh. Yeah. So it didn't seem to be a very close relationship. (laughs) 
Lizzie would apparently just openly talk about how she believed that Abby had married her father for his money. And apparently the girls rarely ate dinner with their father and stepmother. Hmm. So it's not, they're not like a lovey-dovey family. There is a weird story that's maybe true where Lizzie had built a roost for some pigeons that lived in their barn and then the father killed the pigeons with a hatchet because they were attracting local kids who wanted to hunt them. And then Lizzie was apparently upset that he killed these pigeons that she'd well, like, taken the liking to. Well, if that's a true story, to. that's pretty, uh, you know, an interesting use of a weapon. And then, yeah, at the, you know. Yeah. <laughs> at the very least, that's example of an example of them. Yeah, but is that like maybe a tall tale kind of? It kind of seems like it. And with any story this famous, like, yeah, you're going to get tall tales. So, by 1892, tensions in their family are definitely building. Andrew had just given a lot of property to the stepmother's family, like, just assorted members of the family. He's like, you can have some property, you can have some property. And Emma and Lizzie were not about it. Uh, Apparently, there was a massive family argument that summer where both sisters then afterwards took extended vacations away from home. And then even when Lizzie came back to Fall River, she stayed in a boarding house for a few days before coming back to the house. Hmm. And she returned to Fall River a week before the murders. Yeah. Not great. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, we're going to get into it now. Let's get into it. On August 3rd, the night before the murders, John Vinicum Morse, which was their real mom's brother, came and stayed at their house to discuss some business matters. I don't really know what they were, but some people think that maybe they were talking about property and stuff, and that may have aggravated the tension in the household. That night, John, the brother, slept in the guest room, and then the next morning, he, Andrew, the dad, Abby, the stepmom, and Lizzie ate breakfast together. Uh, The maid, Bridget, was also present, but Emma, the sister, was on vacation. She was away from home. Oh, okay. Yeah. After breakfast, Andrew and John went to the sitting room and talked for, like, about an hour. This is all happening very early. So, John left the house at 8.48, apparently to buy some oxen, like you do. Oh, and to visit his niece, who also lived in town. And then... Andrew, the father, left to go for a walk sometime after 9 a.m. It was normally Lizzie and Emma's job to clean the guest room, but Abby, the stepmom, went to do it that morning at some point between 9 and 10.30 a.m. Okay. Based on forensic evidence, they know that the killer entered the guest room and Abby turned to face them because the first blow was to the front of her. Or, like, would it, like the front side of her head. So she was struck with a hatchet, and it cut her just above the ear, causing her... So, like, it caused her to spin uh, and fall on the floor face down, which then bruised her nose and forehead. And then the killer continued to hit her with the hatchet. 17 more direct hits in total on the back of her head. Oh, God. But I, I do think the first blow killed her, so that, that you're right, that is overkill. So that just happened, we don't know, at some point before 10.30. Then around 10.30, Andrew returned home from his walk, and his key didn't work in the door, so then he knocked, 
and the maid went to let him in, but then she found that the door was jammed. <laughs> One of the things I read, oh, this is a direct um, testimony. It was a quote of her testimony in, in court. So the maid says that she said, pshaw, while struggling to open the door. <laughs> um, <laughs> Love that. And that, pshaw, pshaw. Oh, pshaw. Oh, pshaw. And that she then, when she said that, she heard Lizzie laughing from the top of the stairs at her struggle. <sighs> I'm going to put in a map. <laughs> yeah. So I'll put a map of the layout of the house. But the layout was such that anyone standing at the top of the stairs would have been able to see the body in the guest room. So if Bridget, the maid, is telling the truth and Lizzie was standing at the top of the stairs, she would be able to see the mom's body. But Bridget couldn't see the body from the front door. No, because the front door is downstairs and the guest room is upstairs. Durr. Yeah. Uh, So then, but Lizzie would deny that she was upstairs at the time. And then she said that when she spoke to her father when he came in, uh, she told the father that Abby, the stepmother, was out in town visiting a sick friend. So Bridget says during this time... During the next sort of half hour, Lizzie asked her a couple times if she was going into town and was telling her about a specific store that was having a sale, which kind of, to me, sounds like Lizzie is trying to get Bridget out of the house. Right. But also, how does no, is no one finding the body? Well, Emma's on vacation. Bridget is downstairs. Andrew is downstairs. And Lizzie also, at this point, is downstairs. Well, I feel like you could very easily venture upstairs. Well, but they haven't. They're... Well. It hasn't happened yet. Okay. So, here's the thing is... Okay, wait. So, Lizzie said that she helped her father take off his boots and put on his slippers, which, like, why does he need help? But also, Lizzie's 32 at this point, so I guess he might be old. I don't know how old he was when he died. Well, also, if you're trying to keep people from going upstairs and just trying to keep tabs on people, you could be like, oh, hey, let me help you with that. And yes. stand very close to you and... What you doing? What has it yeah. done? You know? Apparently, he was in the habit, maybe after his walk, he was in the habit of taking a nap, so he goes to take a nap on the sofa. But the interesting thing is Lizzie specifically talks about taking off his boots and putting on his slippers, but in the crime scene photos, you can see that he's wearing the boots. Hmm. And, that, and that's not, like, my observation. That is a well-known contradiction in the evidence. Why would you even lie about that? We'll get into it. Okay. Um, so Bridget also went to take a nap in her own room. Now, Bridget's room is on, I believe, the third floor. Sorry, for our American friends, it's on the third floor. If you're not American, it's on the second floor. Nice. Yeah. Um, but I wonder then if, I think there's a back stair based on the the maps of the house. Mm. So I think she would have gone up the back stair, which would be like the servant stair. Therefore, she wouldn't have seen the... The mom. Is the door in the guest room just left open? Apparently. That seems incredibly stupid. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's not one of the only stupid things that happens in this case. Well, also, if Lizzie did it, I feel like, why would she leave the door open? That would make it so much easier, that would make it easier to for someone to find the body. Why would she leave the body there? I don't know. I don't know. Um, I have no idea. So... Bridget's in her room taking a nap, and then at 11.10 a.m., she hears Lizzie shouting from downstairs. This is a quote. Maggie, come quick. 
Father's dead. Somebody came in and killed him. Two things about this statement. The first thing is that their maid before Bridget was named Maggie, and sometimes they just called her the wrong name. You know, mom messes up our names. She gets <laughs> yeah, us switched true. up every once in a while. So <laughs> That's very true. The second thing is, you know in true crime how they talk about, like, misleading or over-specific 911 calls? Yes. Where they'd be like, somebody killed my baby, or like, what does he say, what does he say in the staircase? She fell down the stairs. Yeah. Like, just when you give... Or, I, what is he we say? have a kidnapping. Yeah, when you Patsy provide... Ramsey, 1996. So, by the fact that she says, somebody came in and killed him, that to me sounds like one of those over-specific 911 calls. Because, like, if, if that had actually happened to you and you'd found, like... If I found say, your oh my body God, help. all hatcheted up, I'd be, like, just screaming. Or, like, help. Or, you like, say help. she's dead. Even saying she's, I mean, I guess, like, he is pretty... Well, also, you check and see, survive. right? I mean, like... You, there would be an element of shock and denial where you wouldn't want to believe they were dead. You'd call for help first. Or, I'd, alternatively, again, you would try and, you would be, like, fucking wake up. Mm. You know what I mean? Like... So that Here's is. The thing. So to me, it's like how. No, just proclaiming that is almost like having it on the record to be like, "Oh my god, somebody killed my dad, and it definitely wasn't me." Exactly. Right now, I will say we can't, we can't predict how anyone is going to react. Right. In grief, but that it does sound suspicious. Mm-hmm. There is a pattern in in places in cases where someone has done a crime and then tried to cover it up that the 911 calls have these sort of similar characteristics. So just mm-hmm. putting that out there. So Bridget comes into the living room. Andrew was on the sofa. He had been struck 10 or 11 times with a hatchet, including once cleanly through an eyeball, meaning that he was probably asleep when the attack started. I don't know why that means that, but I guess maybe there's no defensive wounds on the hands. So like, I think the first blow kills him while he's asleep. His wounds were still bleeding, meaning the attack would have been very recent, probably about 11 a.m. So then everyone's freaking out. We get the police. Apparently, we get a doctor as well. We call a doctor. Um, the Smithsonian article was kind of insinuating that Lizzie was very anti-immigrant and that there was an Irish doctor on her street, but she called. She was like specifically wanting to get the family's personal doctor who lived a little further away because she was anti-Irish. I don't well- know. Potentially, but also maybe that could be if she has close personal ties to that doctor, maybe yes. he would be less likely to, you know, suspect her or raise any suspicion about her. But on the other hand, maybe she's really dumb and doesn't realize that he actually literally is dead. Maybe if she thinks there's some way that he can be saved, she wants the care of the doctor that she trusts. Just to give the BOTD. Oh, but that just flips the whole thing. I know. Just saying. As a detail. So... So the police are in, the doctor's in, the neighbors are in there comforting Lizzie, who's not crying, by the way. Again, can't predict how someone's going to behave when they're grieving. Mm -hmm. Um, But then Bridget sees Abby in the guest room, and she sees her from sort of like partway up the stairs, meaning she was definitely visible from there. So if Lizzie had been on the stairs at any point, she would have seen her. So now we know that both of them are dead, and these are the facts that we have. Mm -hmm. The victims were killed in their own home. In broad daylight, close to the center of town, no one had been seen entering or leaving the house, 
and no motive like robbery or sexual assault was apparent. Okay. So nothing had, like, been taken or anything? Nothing was taken, just cold-blooded, brutal murder. Okay. So obviously we're going to question everyone. Lizzie gives weird, contradictory answers. Sometimes she says she heard a a distress call while she was outside of the house. Other times she says she doesn't hear anything. Sometimes she says her stepmother was visiting a sick friend. Sometimes she says she knows that she's upstairs. She's like, go and get Abby from upstairs. So she's behaving really weirdly. Mm. The police didn't like her demeanor. They thought that she was suspiciously calm. But they also didn't test her clothes for blood or anything. Now, I kind of feel like you would have blood all over you if you committed a hatchet murder. Absolutely. But I did read that because the first blow killed them, then there wasn't as much blood. There wasn't, like, so much spurting after that. So there's actually less blood in the crime scene than you'd think. I imagine, I mean, she would have have had to change her clothes, right? Yeah, exactly. So in between... She could have had time to do that. She would have had to change her clothes twice. She would have to kill Abby, change her clothes, talk to Bridget and her dad... Then kill her dad, then change her clothes, then be like, like, Bridget, help. There's no way that she wouldn't have been, had blood on her. Yeah, but then if you kill your dad at 11 a.m., you're wearing fucking Victorian lady clothes. Then you're going to have changed your whole outfit by 11.10? I mean... It's hard to change your if clothes you're, when you're a Victorian woman. You're hitting some, even if there's not a lot of spurting, if you're hitting someone with an axe and then yanking it back up yeah it's still gonna splatter on you but maybe like if she was in dark clothes it i remember and i feel like in the maid's testimony it says that she was wearing a light blue dress with dark blue flowers okay yeah so it is like she did probably do it but there are details we can't account for so anyways continuing on uh they did search her room kind of half acidly but She's kept saying that she wasn't feeling well, so they didn't want to stress her out too much. And, like, you would be stressed out if your dad died, regardless of whether you killed him or not. You're going to be stressed out. So then at some point, they search the basement, and they find in the basement two hatchets, two axes, and a hatchet head with no handle. And then on the broken one, on the blade, there's dust, but it doesn't look the same as the dust on all the other ones. It looks like someone purposely put dust on it to make it look like it hadn't been touched for a long time. Mm-hmm. But police didn't take any of the weapons. Just left them well, there. what are they going to do in 18-whatever, you know? Fair point, but still. Enter them into evidence? Yeah, but what Send if the them over to the forensics team? That's the other thing, is she would have to not only clean herself off of blood, wash her hands... But also put the hatchet head back in the basement and apply the dust to it to pretend to make it look like it hadn't been touched. That's a lot to do in ten minutes. I might be changing my stance on this, actually. I've heard a theory that uh, the uncle helped her. We'll talk about that. Okay. Um, Actually, that makes a lot of sense. So, uh, side note to this, family members had reported, like, basically all of them, including the maid, had reported feeling unwell in the days leading up to the murder. So they suspected poisoning. Obviously, they know that they were killed with a hatchet, but they thought that maybe there was also an attempted poisoning. And they tested some food from the house and the stomach contents of the victims, but they didn't find any poison. Well, if they report feeling unwell, then that wouldn't, you know, 
maybe it wasn't a detectable amount, so it wouldn't yeah. have been enough to kill them, but maybe enough to make them feel sick. The, in the maid's in the maid's testimony on the stand, she actually says she did throw up that morning. So like, hmm. if it's something that makes you throw up, then would it not stay in your stomach? Oh, true. But would it Anyways. get in your bloodstream? Yeah, but I, I, are they testing the bloodstream? It just said they tested no, the stomach. No, they are not. Contents. It is medieval times. Well, it's Victorian times. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, so that night, Emma's still... Well, I guess Emma's back now. Emma is staying with her friend 15 miles away. So at some point during these proceedings, they telegram her to be like, your parents are dead, come home. Oh, good. So Lizzie and Emma and their friend Alice Russell are staying with them in the house that night. So did John, the brother, the old mom's brother. And there's police station there. So one officer reported seeing Lizzie and Alice, the friend, going into the cellar with a lamp and a slop pail, maybe full of, like, bloody rags and stuff. Mm. Uh, And then he saw them coming out of the cellar, and then he couldn't really see specifically what she was doing, but he saw that she was doing something while bending over a sink. Sounds Mm. like scrubbing of blood, maybe. So then... The next day, August 5th, John tries to get out of town, and he gets mobbed outside the house because their town is really shook up about this. The next day, August 6th, the police are doing a more thorough search of the house, and they look at the girl's clothes, they take the broken hatchet, and that's the day that they tell Lizzie she's a suspect. Okay. Next day, August 7th, Alice, the friend, walks into the kitchen and sees Lizzie ripping up a dress. Lizzie tells her that she's going to burn it because it's covered in paint, but nobody actually knows if it's the murder dress or not, as in the dress that she was wearing on the day. Hmm. But also, like, you're gonna wait four days to do that? Yeah, weird. I know. Okay, so, the next day, August 8th, is the first hearing. Lizzie is acting super, super weird, contradicting her story a lot, kind of refusing to answer some questions, but... She had been prescribed morphine to calm her nerves after the attack. Mm. So, yeah, you're going to act weird. And that is part of the reason why she was acting so weird, why she does seem so confused about a lot of the details. I completely buy that. Mm -hmm. So, anyways, just evidence. So then on August 11th, she was put in jail and she would be indicted on December 2nd. But then the testimony from that initial hearing was later thrown out. So that's not really in the evidence of the actual trial. I think it has to do with something, maybe it has to do with the morphine. Like, they're like, you, she's implicating herself uh, okay. while she's drugged. You can't really do that. Yeah. And I, like, people are, people feel bad for her because she's a good, we'll get into this more later, but, like, she's a woman, a, quote, helpless woman. She's a good Christian, all this stuff. Right. Her parents have been brutally murdered. Yeah, so we have all these biases. Biases? Mm-hmm. Working in her yep. favor. Okay. So, the trial starts on June 5th, 1893. Weirdly, five days before that, there was just... Oh, five, sorry. Five days before the trial starts, there was another axe murder in town. And some people thought that the MOs were really similar. So it might have been the same person. But a guy got convicted of the other murder, and he was not even in town at the time of the board of murders. Mm. Also, there's not, no one, there was no witnesses that saw anyone, like, any stranger coming and going. Right. Yeah, so. That is kind of odd, though, that they would happen kind of close together. Well, within the same year. Mm. Okay. So, one main point of evidence was the weapon 
people didn't really feel like the prosecution made a strong enough case that the broken hatchet head was actually the murder weapon. And they said that, well, prosecution was saying the killer would have purposely taken off the handle because blood would be soaked into the wood. But then there was something where the evidence was, like, somebody said they'd found the handle and somebody said they hadn't. So that's kind of, like, all useless evidence. Hmm. Another thing they get into is blood evidence. The friend testified about the dress that Lizzie had allegedly burned, and the defense didn't even try to challenge this claim or explain it in any way. Sounds like she doesn't have very good defense, necessarily. Yeah. But then, like, she does have good defense because she has the best defense that money can buy. Mm -hmm. So I don't know about that. Then there's the question of whether Lizzie was even in the house at the time. So when Bridget went upstairs after Andrew came back from his walk... She said that Lizzie and her father were both in the sitting room. And then Lizzie said she went out to the barn for 20 to 30 minutes. And the defense had two witnesses, I guess people from the neighborhood, confirm that she was in the barn, but they said it was more like five minutes. And also, I think Bridget was only in her room for like 10 minutes in between. So the timing is all very weird. Right. But at 1110, as we know, Lizzie cried out to Bridget that her father was dead. Mm Mm-hmm. So timings are all super weird. We don't really know who's you telling the truth here. You went to the here. barn to do what? Well, they like the thing about it is they're wealthy and they have a maid, but they do a lot of chores themselves. Mm. So maybe she's doing chores in the barn. I seem to recall that from okay. somewhere. So the defense, not only the legal defense in the courtroom, but the press really focused on how well-bred she was, how she was active in the church community and all her charity work, and how she could never be capable of such a thing Actually, her attorney specifically told her how to dress to appear like an innocent, helpless woman. Mm-hmm. And like I said before, it's like really important Casey to know. Anthony. Yeah, they did well, the like same. In, thing like in any case, they yes. tell you how to dress. Correct. I mean, even in the staircase, they talk about that guy gets rigorous training on how to present himself in the stand. Yeah, it's part of it. But um, she, yeah. it is important to note she's very rich and can afford good lawyers. So the jury is made up of almost exclusively of Protestant men. She's a Protestant woman. And some of these men would have had daughters her age, so they would probably feel bad for her. They deliberated for less than an hour before deciding to acquit her. Okay. So, yay, she didn't do it. Except she probably did. People, even though she was acquitted, people in town and in their church really shunned them. Children would mock them and prank them. No one let them forget what had happened that day in August 1892, even though she's officially innocent. Like a lot of the townspeople think that she actually did it. Yeah, they must. Yeah, I guess so. Eventually, the sisters had a huge falling out, and Emma moved away, and they never saw each other again. Oh, my God. That sucks. Yeah. Yeah. And they still died within nine days of each other. probably a murderer. Yeah, you'd feel weird about that. Yeah. I would feel weird about it if you were a murderer. I have this weird, okay, can we take a quick sidebar? I have this weird memory of, like, when I was, like, like one of my, early, like, really early memories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're going to be mad at me for this. And this is very weird. I was a weird child. But it was when mom was explaining to me that no matter what, like, even if I did bad things, like, she would always love me. And I said, what if I killed Megan? Would you turn me into the police? <laughs> and she said, I- well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's the thing you ask your parents when you learn about, like, doing bad things and that you can do bad things and what bad things are. 
then I, I'm sure I asked the same thing. Not if I yeah. murdered you, but like, would you still love me if I killed someone? And then they have to say, well, yes, but. Yes, but you also you're to... responsible and, you know, yeah. there are consequences for that. Yeah. I would probably love you if you killed someone. Although this is the thing about like BTK, like in those letters, I don't know if you were like a horrible serial killer, if I would still love you. Yeah. Sorry, but I just don't know. I hope I never have to find out. <laughs> yeah, I hope. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> Anyways, would you like some theories? Okay. Okay, so um, the Smithsonian article I keep bringing up is written by a guy named Joseph Conforti, and he is basically talking about how her class, gender, and religion made her the perfect combination that could never be convicted of such a violent crime. So people saw her as a helpless woman. She was a good Protestant in a very Protestant-dominated area, and her family was very wealthy. Mm -hmm. I guess her town was also, like I mentioned before, increasingly full of anti-Irish and anti-immigrant sentiment. I read that the first suspect was a Portuguese immigrant, even though there was no evidence against him, just basically that he was not from there. And so they're like, you are suspicious. (sighs) And maybe people would be more likely to dismiss Bridget, the maid's testimony, because she's just a maid and she's Irish. Hmm. Yeah. So, Joseph Conforti is arguing she 100% did it, no question. And frankly, yeah, even to this day, wealthy white women do very well in a corrupt justice system. Yeah. So, I would buy that. Or even not wealthy white women. Yeah. Like, Casey Anthony. Casey Anthony, all right. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, There are other suspects. Like you mentioned, the brother. So some people think that it's suspicious that he just kind of... Because he wasn't close to the family. He would never really come around. Yeah, the fact that he was there right when it was happening. And, like, that's this whole other variable that is unusual and that is now, you know, a part of the circumstance that, you know... Yeah, yeah, the fact that he was never, like, he didn't have a real relationship with them. He just turns up out of nowhere, and then the murders happen the next day. And apparently, that thing I was saying mm-hmm. about over-detailed um, 911 calls, apparently he was, like, really forthcoming with volunteering his alibi about how he was going to buy <sighs> the oxen or whatever. Yeah. And apparently it was, like, really over-detailed and too perfect of an alibi. <laughs> so people were like, <laughs> uh, Some people also think maybe the maid... So, okay, Um, Okay. you know how, you know how I mentioned the maid said she had thrown up that morning, it was August, so it's really hot outside, and apparently they had told her to clean the windows that day, which I guess was a chore that she didn't like to do, so the theory is that she's mad at them for making her clean the windows on a hot day when she's sick, and she's just finally had enough of this family's antics, and she's gonna kill them. That seems like overkill. That seems very far-fetched, but also probably because she's a maid, so rich people are going to want to believe that it was the maid. Right. So that's a theory. Some people say that Emma, the sister, might have used being out of town as an alibi, but I just think it seems a little far-fetched that she would be on vacation, leave her vacation, travel 15 miles to kill her parents, then go 15 miles back in time to get the telegram that they were dead. Right. That just seems like... It's possible, but it's a lot. Not plausible, yeah. So most of the theories just sent around explaining why Lizzie would have done it, because they just sort of accept that she did it. Um, 
Victoria, starting that sentence over because I was shifting around. Victoria Lincoln thought maybe she did it in a fugue state, which is a dissociative slash psychiatric disorder where people have memory loss and like general confusion and distress. Mm -hmm. That does kind of sound like the behavior that she was exhibiting at the time. There's a theory that her father might have physically and sexually abused her, which would be the motivation for her to kill him. There's absolutely no evidence of this, but Mm -hmm. then it's 1892, so they wouldn't have talked about it. They wouldn't have tested for evidence of sexual abuse. Also, if there is any truth to the fugue state theory, this would make a lot of sense because fugue states are often a symptom or like a coping method of sexual abuse. Okay. So there could be something in that. Like, probably not, and I don't want to go throwing around these accusations because there is really no evidence, but, like, that's a thing people say. Right. Again, I think there's this tendency when white women commit horrible crimes, you want to make them the victim in some way. Right, but then... Like, society wants... Also, if the sister and the maid, you know, hadn't... It's possible that they might not have known if this was the case, but... Yeah, maybe they would not know. Maybe they would be too ashamed to talk about it. I mean, Victorians are known for being, like, the most sexually repressed. I know, but then, like, if the maid goes as far to testify against Lizzie, then that, to me, would indicate that she is not aware of it. Or sympathetic. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, speaking of the maid, one more theory. Ed McBain suggested that Lizzie and Bridget might have been secret lovers and that Abby had that Abby had caught them in the act so she killed Abby and then like sort of tried like is freaking out and confesses to her dad and then he obviously does not react well to the fact that she's a lesbian and a murderer and that she kills him too but that's kind of like the sexual assault theory where it would make sense and it would explain it but it's not it's speculation Exactly. You know, there's no evidence exactly. to support it. There's, so I'm going to, there's very, very loose evidence, which I'm going to tell you now. There were rumors that Lizzie Borden was a lesbian, probably just because she's 32 and not married, which at the time probably True. would be old. Also, she had this friend who was an actress and like, not that you could be out in 1892, but apparently this, she was like as out as you could be. It was kind of known in her acting circles that she was a lesbian, and she was very close friends with Lizzie Borden. And apparently, at some point after the murders, Lizzie Borden and Nance O'Neill, is this woman's name, they throw a party together, and then that was the instigation for the fight that Lizzie Borden had with her sister, and that caused the sister to move out. Hmm. So, maybe. Also, unrelated but cool fact, uh, Nance O'Neill, this famous lesbian, played Alexandra in the silent film The Fall of the Romanovs. Yeah. Nice. It all comes back. It all comes together. Yeah. So, so far we have rumors about Lizzie Borden being a lesbian, probably because she is unmarried and was friends with a lesbian, (laughs) which everyone knows if you're friends with a lesbian, it means you're a lesbian too. There were no rumors about Bridget being a lesbian. Uh, She did later marry a man... But that doesn't mean you're that not a lesbian. That doesn't mean anything. Yeah. So, uh, again, this theory is mostly just based on speculation, but the story goes that Bridget gave her sister a deathbed confession that she had changed her story on the stand to protect Lizzie. I don't well, have any details about how she changed her story, what details she omitted, 
But that's what the story says. Again, absolutely no evidence around any of this. So well, it kind of seemed knows. also like she was kind of testifying against Lizzie. So, yeah, but then like maybe she was testifying against Lizzie, but like didn't tell all the details. Hmm. I don't know. Weird. I don't know. Yeah. So, the only thing from this point that we know for sure is that Lizzie Borden died in 1927, and very few people attended her funeral. (laughs) Rough. Yeah. I think the uncle helped her. Somebody had to have helped her, right? He's in town. Change your own clothes in this time. The first time in, you know, whatever. She, like, they're all upset about the property being given away by the father. She is probably fed up of with being a rich person and living with a house with no electricity or running water and is like, I don't have to put up with this. That's true because I bet they inherit the money because Emma and the sister moved. So apparently Lizzie, so apparently she was a little racist and like didn't want to live in this neighborhood because a lot of Irish people were moving in. Mm-hmm. And so then there was like a more fashionable, wealthier neighborhood that she kept trying to be like, we should really move there. Which and to the clarify, like, not that at this, not that like the Irish are a different race, but at this time where there was mm. a lot of Irish immigration. Yeah, anti-immigrant, I guess, rather than racist. Well, at the time, I think it was con- like, it was, they, it was yeah considered a race. Yeah, yeah. So, so she wants to move to this fancier richer trendier neighborhood right. away from like, like a lot upscale, of the immigrants all american yeah. and her father's like no and so then actually after the murders lizzie and emma move to that neighborhood huh yeah so maybe it's maybe they maybe she just wanted to be in charge of her own not just as in like that's not good reason for a murder but maybe it's as simple as she wanted to be in charge of her own money and also the uncle also had, you know, clearly had issues with the whole property thing, and... Yeah. With how... But why now? Do you think it's just that they got fed up? Or maybe it's that they're old enough now. I don't know the age difference between them, but Lizzie's 32. I want to say that Emma is, like, 40. So I wonder if it's that they're like, okay, clearly we're not getting married. We're not getting out of this unless we take action ourselves. Right. I just, like... That, to me, is weird if the... If the uncle is involved then. Because, like, the mom died 29 years before. And the dad remarried 26 years before. But he was about to start giving out all this property. He already has been. Hmm. Yeah. Maybe it was just a straw that broke the camel's back situation. Yeah. We'll never know. That's the thing about old mysteries, is, like, a current unsolved mystery, you might get the answers. (sighs) Yeah. Lizzie Borden, Jack the Ripper, those kind of old ones, we're never going to know. She had to have help. And I think it makes sense that it would be the uncle, but we don't know what the trigger would be in that case, and we'll never know. Yeah. You could argue that it could have been the maid, but then again, the maid does kind of provide damning evidence against Lizzie. And also, I think Lizzie would have let the maid take the fall for it. Yeah. Frankly, it's weird that she didn't make the maid escape. Unless they were in love. Mm-hmm. But then why would the maid testify against Lizzie? Unless what the maid actually knows is so much worse. Yeah, and then she's, that's true. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know if that one was too well done to do, but, like, clearly there's there are still questions. We're still having a good oh, yeah, conversation definitely. about it. Yeah. Oh, man. That was good. Thank you. 
seem like a good one to be ramping up towards Halloween. Yeah. Anything else on Lizzie Borden? No, that was great. You did a great job. Thank you. You're welcome. I enjoyed about this one, there's a lot of detailed evidence and a detailed timeline mm-hmm. surrounding the murders. And I think it's always good when you can get really detailed with it. Because, yeah. like, the Flannan Isles lighthouse disappearance, it's like, hmm, well, there was no living witnesses, so I guess we can talk about what happened after. Yeah. Hmm. Um, what are you looking forward to this week? Just looking forward to rehearsal. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's it. That's kind of it. I really don't okay. have that much going on. Yeah. I think your mouse. Oh, I hope so. Well, you're looking forward to your birthday, but we already talked about that. Yes, but that's... Is By the time it's airs, this will be in the past. Oh, yeah. Um, the other thing, I'm looking forward to getting back to running after oh, yeah. my hamstring. I'm supposed to be training for a 10K, which I have not been training for, so I need to do that. And I'm looking forward to, oh, I might be shooting uh, like a web commercial this weekend. Oh, we shall see. Good yeah, if, the, if, it, if it all works out. Good. Yeah. I hope it does. Anything else? No. Nope. Uh, so many people have been re- 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 recommending me to listen to Unbelievable. Oh, it's really good. That's a show, though. It's not a podcast. Oh, I know. Did I say listen to? Yeah. I meant to say watch. It's really good. You yeah. should watch it. Okay. Okay. Mm. Well, yeah. thank you guys for listening, and I hope you have a good week. We'll catch you again on Thursday for our second mini-myth episode. And next week is our Halloween episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Time flies when you're having fun. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, guys. Carly here, and we wanted to thank you for listening to Sisterly History Mysteries. We hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we enjoyed talking about it and sharing it with you. If you don't mind, we'd really appreciate it if you'd rate, review, and subscribe as it makes our day, but it also really helps us out. You can email us at sisterlyhistorymysteries at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at sisterlypodcast. 